Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, good morning, Sojourn. It is good to be back, good to be with you. Um, last week, if I'm not mistaken, Wes Hughes was here. Uh, he has his doctorate in Sabbath rest studies, so I'm following up a hard act. <laughs> but to be fair, I also chose this passage, so I knew what I was getting into. But if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. So that's over in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4 will be there in just a few moments. Before I begin, I'm just going to pray for our time together again. Father, you are faithful. We're thankful for your truth found in your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, first and foremost, through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, truly God, becoming truly man without ceasing to be God, living on this earth of perfect, sinless life, following your commandments exactly the way they should have been followed and still going to the cross and being put to death uh, the death that we deserved a punishment that we should have received for our mistakes and our sins and yet Jesus you took upon the wrath and the penalty uh, for us and you were beaten and crucified for our sins and praise God you did not stay in the grave but we worship a resurrected Christ. Three days later, you were brought back from the dead, uh, defeating death, removing the sting of death. And it's because of that truth that we can now stand here today uh, assured of the promise that you offer us in Hebrews chapter 4. So would you open our hearts and our minds up now to receive your word? And we pray that we would honor you with our thoughts and with our words. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So, to start off our time this morning, I want to read an article to you. It's a, it's a bit um, uh, dated now, but I think the point will still stand. Um, so, any of you uh, fans of running or the Olympics? Right? Most people at least like the Olympics. Uh, there was a lady who used to run in the Olympics, uh, Susie Faber Hamilton was her name. Uh, the article goes on to say, uh, Hamilton was known in the late 1990s and the first few years of this century as the best American woman middle distance runner. Hamilton ran in three Olympics, the last being the 2000 Sydney Games, where she mysteriously collapsed on the track. Uh, that would actually signal the end of Hamilton's racing career. She has been spotlighted, uh, if you read articles about her, for many good things. And also for a lot of questionable things, as uh, oftentimes happens with, with uh, celebrity runners and other people in the uh, sports field. Um, but consider the story that happened during her college days back in the 1990s. Yes, that time actually happened, kids. such thing as 1990s. So this is actually Seattle, just north of us. Uh, Hamilton, after three laps around the Husky Stadium track, uh, this U.S. middle distance runner simply lost track 
of time, the article says. She lost track of the finish line. She lost track of just how the race was being run. And she lost track of any chance of that medal at the women's 1500 meters on that Wednesday that this article is writing about. Favor, 21 years old, a senior at the University of Wisconsin and the current NCAA and US champion at 1500 meters, failed to start her kick soon enough. So kind of the last push towards the finish line. She finished fourth out of the medals at four minutes, 11.45 seconds, two seconds behind gold medalist Natalia Artemova of the Soviet Union. Faye would go on to say, I honestly just don't, I honestly just didn't know the finish line was there. I was a little bit disoriented at the start of the race. I thought we had one more lap to go. I knew the Soviets had a plan. I stayed back in the middle of the pack and I wanted to go with the Russians when they went. As they started taking off, I thought, this is re really becoming some race. I knew something was happening. I just wasn't prepared for it to be the end. But as Faber turned down the back stretch for the final time, she looked up at the clock and it read four minutes. By that time, it was too late. If you've ever watched anything running related, uh, if you're looking at the clock and realizing you should go, you're already behind. <laughs> I saw the clock and it said four minutes, Faber said, and I thought, whoa. It was a fatal mistake. After three laps in a race that was run and what should have been in her favor, the pace was a slow one. Artemova and her other teammate, which I will not even try to pronounce, <laughs> finished 1-2, followed by Patty Sue Plumer of the United States. Just before the kick began, Favor said that she heard a bell signaling one lap to go, but the bell just didn't go off in her mind. The phrase I want to kind of stick in our minds as we begin to look at Hebrews chapter 4 is her quote of saying, I knew something was happening. I just wasn't prepared for it to be the end. I knew something was happening. I just wasn't prepared for it to be the end. Well, the book of Hebrews is an interesting one. There's lots of things that we uh, read in Hebrews, but the, the big overarching summary, if I could put it into like one statement of what the book of Hebrews is about, it would be Jesus is better. And so if you start at the beginning of the book, you go all the way to the end, it talks about Jesus is better than the prophets, Jesus is better than Moses, the guy who was commissioned to lead with leading the Israelites. Uh, Jesus is better than the priest. Jesus is even better than the angels. Jesus is better. He's just better than everything. And we get to chapter 4, and it starts with this word, therefore. And uh, most commentators or uh, um, guys who study scripture for a living would say that these Therefores are there for a reason, right? You've probably heard that phrase before. It sticks in my head. Yeah. Uh, there's 13 times in the, if you're looking through the ESV translation, there's 13 times that this transitional word is used in Hebrews. Uh, and the commentator, uh, one commentator actually says that uh, this, therefore, what's preceding it is almost always a doctrinal truth, something that the author's teaching us, and then what comes after that is now, how is that truth going to be applied? So you have a doctrinal truth, therefore, and then kind of how practically is it going to be lived out? So we come to our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, um, and we're going to probably read through actually the end of the chapter, although I said end of 13. I'll just read the whole chapter for context. Um, so here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, 
starting in verse 1, and I'll go back and pick up a little bit of 3 after I read, just to kind of make it all tie together. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. So, before we get into chapter 4, if you were to read chapter 3, it talks about Jesus is greater than Moses. And again, Moses was the one who was commissioned to lead the Israelites out of, the, uh, out of uh, Egypt in the Old Testament. And then if you were to go back later today, you can, you can read the book of Exodus. It talks all about that exiting out of the, the Egyptian land and the escape from Pharaoh and his army. And then we have this kind of long series through the Old Testament where the Israelites were wandering through this desert land. And they were headed towards the promised land, the land that God told them they would receive. Right? This land that was, uh, the words that were used flowing with milk and honey. Another, another way of saying it was plentiful. It had all that they needed. It was going to be a place of rest. It was going to be a promised place where God was going to dwell with his people. And they were going to live there trusting, receiving the blessing of God being close to his people. But something happened, right? You may remember the story of the Israelites. They were miraculously brought out of the land of Egypt. Right? They wandered through the wilderness. Anybody remember some miracles that happened while they were going through the wilderness? Ways that God providentially took care of the people in the desert? What's that? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's like one of my favorites. And it goes along with our story about running, right? The soles of their sandals never wore out. They're traveling through the desert for 40 years. And their shoes never wore out, right? I buy shoes every year because the sole wears out, right? And yet God took care of the, the Israelites. Their shoes never wore out for 40 years, trying to cross hot sand. Right? What a great way to provide for his people. What else happened? Anybody remember? Yeah, their stomachs grumbled, right? Yeah. And if you remember, they grumbled back at God. Yeah. And they were like, God, why'd you bring us here to starve? I would have rather sat under the Egyptian slave owners. At least there, the pots were full of meat, right? And what did God do? He provided manna, right? this mysterious bread that rained down from heaven at night. And in the morning, when they would wake up, it was like dew had covered the ground, and yet it was... But it was flavorful. It was like honey on their tongue, right? God filled their bellies. He provided water for them. They got thirsty. They were in the desert. So God told Moses, the leader, go strike this rock and water will flow. And water flew out of this, flowed out of this rock for all of Israel to drink. And yet through all of this, right, they stood on the banks of the river, looking across to Canaan, the promised land, the land that God told them they could have. And Moses said, we're to go into that land. It's not uninhabited, though. There are people there. But God's promised that we will have victory over everybody in that land. This place is ours. And what was Israel's response? And I remember, this is giving you like an Old Testament history quiz, right? What happened whenever the, the Israelites saw the land of Canaan? Was there like scary people and oh we're, we can't do this? There were, but before the scary people, <laughs> you're on to it. A step before that, all the Israelites were fearful, and so they said, let us send spies into the land. Oh. Right? Can we can we send people to go check the land out and just make sure that God does what he's talking about? Right? <laughs> and so Moses actually it sounded it sounded good to Moses. And you can read about this and in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it sounded good to Moses, and so he selected 12 people, one from each tribe of Israel, and all of those 12 spies went into the land, and then from there you have these two that come back with a positive response, Caleb and Joshua, right? They came back and said, hey, the land is ours, right? Yeah, there are people there, but God is going to take care of us, and the other 10 were like, no, there are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers to them. We're so tiny, and they're so big and strong. And their fear began to grip their hearts. And as a result of that, this incredibly sad story in Deuteronomy chapter 1 unfolds, where God says, because of your disobedience, none of you, spare Joshua and Caleb, none of the rest of you will enter into my promise land. And they actually had to turn, and they went back into the desert. And that entire generation of people died off Seeing the promised land, having it in view, right? seeing the finish line, and yet forfeiting their right, the very thing that God promised that he would give them. Later, we read about this in Psalm 95, where the psalmist recalls how the people of Israel, they hardened their hearts towards the ways of God. God gave them a promise, and yet instead of believing they hardened their hearts and it turned into disbelief. As their hearts hardened, they turned away from God. And then Hebrews is just further expounding on Psalm 95 and showing exactly what's unfolded over the 
the series of time and history. And it comes with a strong warning to us this morning. So with all that in mind, that's why the author begins chapter 4 with, uh, well, pick up at verse 19 in chapter 3. It says, so we see that they, the Israelites, the ones who are standing on the banks of the Jordan River looking into Canaan, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not enter the promised land. They did not enter God's rest because they did not believe. Verse 1 again. Therefore, so this should clue our ears in, right? Get your antennas up. These people didn't enter. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. And then it's this interesting phrase. Kind of seemed out of place at first. While there's a promise of entering his rest, let us fear. Yeah, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So what does the author talk about here? Is fear good or is fear bad? What's that? I feel like it depends what type of fear. <laughs> it's both, right? Yeah. Tricky answer. See. <laughs> yeah, we look at the Israelites. Their fear was a, was a man-centered fear, right? They looked and they saw something that they couldn't tackle, something that they couldn't take care of. And so that unholy fear led to disbelief, which led to disobedience, right? On the other side of that, we actually have this beautiful fear that God gives his people, this fear of God, this holy fear, this righteous fear, this correct fear. Right, where we actually understand God is something totally different than we are. And my goodness, he is powerful. And he can strike me down at any moment. And we see these responses all through scripture. The, the, my favorite, again, you should go and read this later, Revelation chapter 5. It's the story of John, who's been exiled to this island because of his faith. And God gives him visions of things to come. And whenever John turns around and he sees Jesus in this vision, he falls down on his face as though dead. And that's the typical response of people when they see Jesus or they see the, the Christ manifested in life throughout Scripture is that they fall down on their face in this holy reverential fear because they recognize that they are in this place of a holy righteous God. This God who is totally different totally above, totally different than they are. And we'll get back to this in just a minute, but it also ties in with the last verses of chapter 3 of how it says the scriptures, they lay us bare, right? There's no one that, that can hide from God. We're all exposed, right? You just imagine, like, standing before the God who knows all things, and he sees every bit of you. The good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, the things that you wish no one would ever know about you. He sees it all. And just that knowledge of who he is just causes us to fall before him. And so we have this warning. Therefore, while the promise of entering the rest still stands, good news, the promise of rest is still available. Right? The, the first generation of Israelites failed to receive it, but that doesn't mean that God closed the door and threw away the key. It's still here. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
For good news, verse 2 says, came to us. Good news came to us. Just as it has to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So we can hear the message of God over and over and over again. It happens, right? And yet, if we turn a deaf ear to it, or if we allow our hearts to be hardened against it, it actually does not benefit us. It works to further condemn us. So the author's warning us here, listen, listen, there's good news. The promised rest still stands. But there's this whole group of people that we should take note of, right? Final board, exhibit A. Look at the Israelites. They didn't enter the rest because they didn't unite the promises of God with faith. Rather, their hearts grew cold. They didn't believe God. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. So there's a connection here. How do we enter the rest? It's not by crossing over a physical river, right? We don't go down to the Willamette and cross over and hope that God's on the other side waiting for us. Right? We're talking about this spiritual thing happening now, right? Where we see this physical group of Israelites represent God's people. We now know through the New Testament that that's been expanded. It's, it's not just for an ethnic people group, but it's for anybody who would come to salvation through Jesus Christ. And we have this promised rest that God's given, and the river that we cross over, that we step over, is this this river of faith, we cross it by trusting, believing, putting our hope in Jesus. So for we who have believed, we enter that rest. Now let me ask you a question. Do you experience that rest? I hope you do, but then I have a follow-up question. If you are a believer, if you put your trust in Christ and you're experiencing that rest, do you feel it all the time? Or does life have these like days where it just reminds you that you are still human, right? And you still struggle. There, there's actually some uh, differences in opinion. If you read commentators on the book of Hebrews, there, a, a bunch of them say this rest is a promised future rest. So it would be considering... Like, one day when this life is over, we'll get to rest with God in eternity for all time. And there's another group of commentators that would say, no, the rest is for the here and now. Like, we can trust and rest that God has accomplished this great work. It's not saying that heaven's not real, but the rest is for us here and now. We can grab hold of it. And I think Hebrews 4, if I can be bold enough to say this, is speaking of both. And I think it's pointing our... Eyes forward, I think it's telling us, look above the horizon, lift your head up, right? Gain some perspective. Don't forget that this life that we're living right now is not all that there is. There's a future promise where God, he promises to make all things new. Right? He's going to restore, he's going to mend what has been broken, Revelation talks about. He's going to make all things new again. And yet, right now, we can enter into that rest as well. Right? We, don't, we don't have to strive towards anything because the work has been fully and completely accomplished. There's a quote by John Piper. He says this, 
So what is the conclusion from the fact that Israel was not able to enter God's rest because of unbelief? The conclusion is that we should fear. Right? Talk about that good type of fear. The connection with verse 19 in chapter 3 surely tells us the thing we are to fear is unbelief. Therefore, fear that unbelief, because that's what will keep you from entering God's rest, God's haven of salvation, and God's heaven. Fear unbelief. Fear not trusting God. Fear God. So there is, in a sense, this promised rest that we will have if we are putting our hope and our faith in Christ. And also, there's a promised rest for today, right? We can know God commands us, actually. Jesus tells us in Matthew, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your shoulders and give me your anxious thoughts and your worries and your ways. Jesus is saying, I will bear your load. And in exchange, I'll give you mine, which is, which is light. The work has been done. It's been accomplished. In another sense, right, we, we rest in the here and now because the work of salvation has been completed. Right? So there's nothing that you or I, we're not ever going to do anything to add to the salvation that Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. That was a, a task reserved for the one perfect person, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. Right? Every single one of us in here falls into the other camp, decidedly, messed up sinner. <laughs> right? Those who need grace. We're all in need of a Savior. And Jesus was the only one who was the spotless Lamb of God, the one who came and lived on this earth without sin. Tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted and yet remain without sin. He went to the cross, and Scripture teaches that when he died on the cross, the, the full wrath of God was completely satisfied on the cross. And so Jesus took on all of the punishment that we deserve, the things that our sin should have received. Right? Romans would teach that because of our sin, we deserve death and separation from God. And yet, because of Jesus' work on the cross, we now can receive life and hope. And so we rest in that today. Right? We know that the future promise that, that we will be able to spend eternity with God one day if we're putting our hope in Jesus. But there's also this beautiful promise for us today where we, in a sense, don't have to do anything. Right? Our salvation has been secured for us. And so we, of all people, should be able to just breathe. Rest in the salvation that God has given you. Rest in the promise that we serve a good God who loves to give his children good gifts. He loves to supply us with the things that we need. Now, the work that he does in our hearts is he brings our hearts into alignment with what we actually need. Right? He shapes us and changes us to become more like Christ. And he gives us all that we need. So this is an invitation for you this morning to cease your striving. And that's really difficult for us to do, isn't it? It's hard 
primarily, if I could boil it down to a core truth, I think it would be primarily because we believe in hope in people more than we believe in hope in God. Most of our strivings, if not all of our strivings in this life, somehow revolve around working hard to impress the boss to hopefully get the raise, working hard to impress our spouse and, and hopes to get something good in return from them, working hard to impress our children so they'll like us. The list goes on and on. And like we constantly spend our days trying to impress people, right? We look at ourselves in the mirror. We try to impress ourselves, right? It's like, man, I've got more gray hair coming in and less up top. How do I like look better, you know? We're constantly spending these days looking for ways to impress other people. I'm reading a great book right now by a guy named Ed Welch called When, when uh, People Are Big and God Is Small. And it's this very core truth. Uh, the, the remedy, right, to, to ceasing from trying to impress people is not striving to try to stop impressing people. The, the medicine that we need is to have a right view and perspective of who God is. So realize that God is much grander and even better and bigger than our finite minds can, can comprehend. And as we gain perspective on who God is, all of a sudden people gain their right spot in their lives and they are small and God is big, right? And then this beautiful thing happens where we then have the freedom to serve others because we're no longer serving them secretly looking for something in return. And we have this freedom to worship God because he has our hearts now. And our, our fear of him is drawing us into trust. And trusting him draws us into following his commands. And following his commands draws us into worship. So if you back that out again, right? So fear from the Israelites led them to unbelief, and unbelief led them to disobedience. Correct fear for the people of God leads us to trust in God, and trusting God leads us to follow and obey his commands, and following and obeying his commands leads to worship of the one true God. So we should strive, Hebrews is saying, to enter this rest by trusting in the one who's offered it to us in the first place. Listen again to the warning in verse 3. God swore towards the people of Israel in his wrath that they shall not enter his rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For somewhere, verse 4 says, for, some, uh, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's drawing our minds back to creation, back to the creation story. If you're looking at Genesis, God speaks and things happen, right? God speaks and the sun appears and the moon appears. God speaks and animals appear. God speaks and plants are created and the, the waters and the waters stop at a certain place right on the shoreline, right? And he speaks and mountains are created. And then after all of creation, right? Oh, and he speaks and people are created. His prize possession, right? And then after all things are created, what happens? He rests. 
Yeah, God rests. His work has been done. And for us, we're now invited to do that same thing, to rest, not in our finished work, right? But in the finished work of Jesus, of, of God, of the Creator, right? He has spoken, He has rested, and now we're invited to rest. Verse 5, again, it says, They shall not enter my rest. If you're keeping track, this is the second time, and like, Five sentences that the authors come back around to this again. They are not going to enter the rest. The Israelites aren't going to enter. Warning, warning, warning. It's like driving your car down the interstate with no oil in it. The lights are going off, right? Pay attention. They're not going to enter my rest. Verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news and failed to enter it because of disobedience, Again, he appeals to a certain day, saying, today, right, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't put it off. This is of utmost importance. Clear your calendar, right? Don't do anything until you settle this main thing, because this main thing will determine whether or not you get to pass over the river into the promised land. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't harden your hearts. And the implication there is that because we're not promised the next minute. Right? We're not promised to be able to get into our cars and make it all the way home this afternoon. We're not promised the next breath that we're going to draw into our lungs and that our lungs are going to function properly. We're not promised that next time we get cut, that our blood cells are going to work properly and clot in the correct place and not clot the rest of our arm and create a hematoma. But things that are way beyond what we ever even consider. We're not promised the next moment. So today, if you hear the voice of God, if you hear him calling you into rest, don't put it off. Don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So now he begins to move into the illustration further. So Joshua and Caleb, second generation of Israelites, go into Canaan, right? It's a great land. It has everything that God said it would have, except it's not the final resting place, right? Those people still died, right? We don't have any of those Israelites. We can't call them up on the phone and say, hey, how's the milk flowing over in Canaan, right? It's, they're not there any longer. There was still this future, better rest. All of that was a foreshadow, a picture being created for us to see what God is really talking about. If Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So yes, there's this current rest that we can have, and, and we can trust and breathe and put all of our cares and our anxieties on God. Today, we can do that. We can rest no matter how difficult life is. We can rest in this that's only one piece of the, the pie. The rest of the pie is pointing towards this future rest when he will make all things back together, right again. He'll correct all wrongs. He'll wipe away the tears of all of his children. He'll mend what has been broken, like I said earlier. So then, there remains, verse 9 tells us, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So work to rest, right? <laughs> strive to rest. Rest fully in who God is, but that takes work, right? It just it doesn't happen naturally. We, we're not naturally trusting people, right? We have this propensity to not trust others. We trust ourselves, right? Work to trust God. And the, the way you do that is by spending extended time with God. Spend time in His work. Spend time soaking in His truth. Let Him remind you of how good He is. Here's another difficult reality. Most of the time, the deep truths of God are found in the trials of life and not on the mountaintops. It's normally when you're like the psalmist in, in Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 23, when you're in the, the valley of the shadow of death, that you realize, oh, I have a, a shepherd who is comforting me with the staff and the rod. And I don't have to fear because he is with me. It's not to say that mountaintops are not good. We should strive for those, right? Enjoy life when it's good, right? Take joy in the, the good blessings that God's given us. Good food and automobiles with AC in them when it's 100 degrees outside, right? Enjoy each other, right? Sojourn, rest in the, the local expression of the church that God's given you. Right? This is your family here, and if you're like me, you're like the boys, you're transplanted from somewhere else. You are our family, right? My church is very much my family here. But when you find yourself in the valley, when life is hard, when things get broken beyond repair, right? when you just get kicked in the stomach, it's oftentimes in those moments when you are sitting in God's Word and you realize... He's a good God. When all else has been stripped away, all I need actually is Jesus. He's all I need. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And here's the answer again. I just said it to you earlier. For the word of God. You know how to enter the rest? How do you strive to rest? You sit under the word of God. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. We have things in us that need to be removed. We have doubts and fears that will lead to disobedience to God. We need the word to do the surgical maneuvers to take those things out. The word of God is good, it's living, it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to dividing even the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that causes intense anxiety and fear in you. Because a, a, an almighty God peering into your soul is treacherous thought. But for the person of God, 
What a beautiful thing to know that God sees you at your worst and loves you and cares for you and chose to send his only son to die for you. Even when and even though he can see all of your mistakes. That is incredibly encouraging. That tells me that no matter what happens today, I can go to God and say, God, here I am. This is how I messed up. And I know you're going to receive me. It takes all pretense away. I don't have to go to him looking any sort of way. And trust me, over the past several years, I've gone to him looking all sorts of ways. Right? I have cried and yelled and screamed and cheered and sang and fought and balled my fist and raised my hands. And in every single moment, he's been faithful to me. And his work's been good. It is the honey on my lips, right? It is good for my soul. I need God's word to keep working in me, to transform me, to give me this promised rest that Hebrews is talking about. Let us strive to enter that rest. The word is piercing, it's cutting, it's discerning our thoughts and our intentions. It's working out this rest in our lives. And no creature is hidden from God's sight, verse 13 tells us, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, again, First uh, Corinthians, we talk about how the gospel to some is the aroma of life and to others is the stench of death. I mean, we're seeing that in this passage here. Every person is open and exposed to God. You will bow your knee to him either today or one day soon, right? But he sees all things, and we all will give an account to him. And then the great promise, and I, I close with this, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have this glorious, prized possession in our grasp. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have him, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of peace. And friends, God's mercy is never ending. You can come to him today and you can rest in the promise that he gives us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that you teach us in Hebrews that Jesus is better, that he has gone before us and has prepared a way for us to enter your rest a promised future rest where we will get to spend eternity with you face to face. One day when we will be gloriously changed and there will be no more sin hindering our view of you. And we also have a promised rest for today that we can trust in your work and all that you have accomplished on our behalf. Would you help us to rest? 
God, even now in my heart, would you fight off the fear of unbelief? Would you help us to put our hope and our trust in Jesus and to fear you, leading to trust, leading to obeying your commandments, leading to worship? And I pray all of this in our great high priest, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.